So when I was five, I almost drowned in sea. First thing I learned that day is that fear tastes just like salt. My overly religious grandmother, who always had a Bible verse caught in the back of her throat at the worst possible moment, yanks me out of the water and then says, Anthony, you're a miracle. You know this is how baby Moses was found, right? And then she starts joking that my life is now destined for saving people. So two weeks later, I pretended to be sick on the day of my would-be baptism at her church because I'm afraid of drowning. To this day, I have not been baptized. But everyone expects me to be this anchor chasing the ocean floor. I'm the oldest of six siblings. I've learned to be the best friend, the parent, the diary, the patriarch, the example, and the scapegoat. My mother expects me to keep this steel-fixed smile, holding everything in place while I am free-falling. And anchor is never given a chance to breathe. I was only 18 years old when my daughter was born. She is a fragile little sailboat. <clears throat> and just like everything else in my family, I have to keep her free. I hold her the way a window would hold the imprint of a raindrop. Between her and her mother, I realize that every choice I make for the rest of my life could sink all three of us at once. I feel like I'm just treading water. I'm not allowing myself to drown yet. I'm too far from a worthy obituary to do so. In anger, no matter how far it must fall will only serve one purpose, and it isn't allowed to bring anything else down with it. No one ever thanks an anchor for sacrificing itself for their greater goods. On rare occasions like birthdays and graduations, my family tells me they appreciate me, and I say thank you. I'm just trying to make you proud. What I mean to say is, I am an anchor that is trying to be your lighthouse. You know, I wonder if Moses ever got tired of people mistaking his struggles for prophecy. Maybe he just led the Jews because he knew that's what everyone expected of him, to be a savior before a person. Maybe parting the Red Sea was just his way of avoiding baptism. They say water is supposed to be this sign of purity, but to me, it's a sign of erosion. All of those things that try and break me down. So I stand firm while all the problems I've avoided wash back to shoreside. Make a staff out of this spine and separate the ocean from its salt. My responsibilities from my fears. about 15 to 20 minutes you guys are going to learn that I have a crazy fucking family. Be prepared. Um, like there's crazy and then there's my family. Like I think the way I describe it is like it's it's like Fresh Prince of Bel-Air meets the Cosby Show meets Scandal meets the Wild Wild West meets like everything possibly going wrong on any TV show ever. That's my family, so be prepared for some real craziness. As a matter of fact,
That's not a good this one. My mother tells me I look like the reason she started drinking. <laughs> when my father left, she searched through his things to find traces of the next woman. A blonde strand of hair as if he were saying, I don't need you anymore. She found her first bottle of Hennessy and started chasing my father down to the bottom of it. These days, I can't tell my mother sober from her slumber, and all I want is to be the reason that she wakes up again the day, the day of my first semester of college. We're driving, and she is a slur of tears and alcohol telling me that this is everything she's ever dreamed of, that now I'm becoming more than my father ever was because I'm leaving, but unlike him, I'm leaving for all of the right reasons. In the car, I fall asleep on the lullaby of my mother's approval. But when I wake up, I'm in a hospital bed. My neck is broken in four different places. The doctors wheel me over to my mother where her bruises are the darkest shades of whiskey. She has so many nerve damages that I can see the last nerve she's clean. I have always gotten on tubes running through her entire body. My mother's injuries so severe they make mine look like nothing more than a scraped knee and I'm afraid of her dying before hearing how much I truly love her the day that she wakes out of her coma and returns home. We see that her left arm is paralyzed. But she is sober now and full of fight. She says this arm is a dead weak fuck, hasn't held her back before, she does not plan on starting today, so our family does everything to make sure she never has to move a muscle again. But my mother always needs someone to need her. She loves us by cooking an entire Thanksgiving dinner with one arm in the day that I tell her I'm ready to move into my own place. She says that I am just like my father. I tell her that this is different. That this is me leaving for all of the right reasons to be the man that she's raised me to be, but all she can hear is, I don't need you anymore. I don't feel like her proud son. I feel like a chaser to her next shot. second in the entire nation. Um, I was on a team with like four of the most amazing slam poets and writers I've ever met in my life. And because I'm young as hell, that was the scariest shit ever. Because I sat there all summer trying to figure out why I was there with them, like what made them pick me, if that makes any sense. And one of the things I had to learn in summer was how to not think so much and not give a fuck. And there's this poem that I have that basically was me learning to not give a fuck because I was so afraid to perform it. And then my coach asked me to do it at nationals. And I was just like, uh, fuck you mean? Uh, you got four <laughs> poets. 
you can send one of them up. Don't put me up here and we lose this land because I fucked up. And it was like, nah, go ahead, you got it. And I'm sitting here like, no, I don't. You want to shit my pants on the stage? But you already called me up here, so there's really nothing I can do. You can pretend it's a groupie, you can come on down. No? All right, fuck it, we'll do this poem. And then I do the poem, and I got this really weird story about how I do the poem. And then one of my favorite poets, this guy named Jeanette Smith, runs over to me after I do the poem and like give me a high five. And he like disses and accidentally slaps the shit out of this lady next to me. <laughs> and I'm immediately like still scared as shit. So I'm like, oh my god, are you okay? And she was like, nah, it's cool, it's the Nez. And I'm like, the fuck you mean it's cool, it's the Nez? You just got shit slapped out of you. But I can't say all that in the middle of a slam, so I was kind of like, okay. <laughs> all right, you sure you, you don't know how you sleep? Okay, cool, fuck it. So, um, I'm gonna do this poem, and Denez isn't here, so I don't think anyone's gonna get slapped, so yeah. The night of the verdict. We were parading through the East Village streets before we got the phone call. Silenced by the hush of a gathering through summer air, we trudged our way to the L train, which on this night means luck or loss or lives, or law, as in we are lucky we have not lost our lives. The law will not protect us. All that matters now is suspicious because to them, suspicious is the gap between innocent and funeral. My brother is screaming that we as black people are an endangered species. He only sees red and thinks that this is the shadow of the target on his back. The white people on the train look at us like we are rambunctious bullets. They know not how far we're willing to take this protest. But here, I'm the only one not outraged. Because quite honestly, I ain't expecting nothing different. Post-racial society is just a pretty way of saying hope for justice, but don't expect it. The older black man says, y'all know the way to avoid being mistaken for hoodlums is to present yourselves better. Stay in school. And for God's sake, stop sagging your pants. As if we were the ones responsible for our own deaths. He has good intention, but horrendous delivery. Telling 12 black youth that the system isn't working against them, but they wouldn't call this a system if it wasn't already working. Being black in America is just like being a grizzly on hunting grounds. Everyone is afraid of our claws, but claws won't do a goddamn thing against these bullets. So we drag our bodies out of the train where death weighs each and every one of us down. So one of our friends says, to keep it real with you, man, I just came here to party tonight. And I'm still just trying to have a good time. We go out and we buy drinks. Like that could numb this numb that we already aren't feeling. The night is plantation humid. And my friends on mahogany carved flats dancing their targets off into a drunken slur. This night has made lovers out of us lone wolves to us. This is the black Y2K. This, this is the beauty of my people. 
And we turn tragedy into celebration every single time. Something outside is trying and succeeding at killing us, but this is the only way we know how to mourn our brother's death. So no, this is not the end of our lives. It's the beginning of the fight for it. So by show of hands, how many people in this room know how to fly a spaceship? Good, because I ain't got one for y'all. Mm -hmm. But what I do have, I have this chat book. I have two chat books with me. Um, feel free to come to me after the show if you'd like one. Um, I'm going to read some poems from these because I, I like to write stuff too other than just perform them. So there's some other stuff in here about how crazy my goddamn family is. So, all right. We arrived at the mall. My brother and sister holding hands with my father, joyous to be in the public eye with him, parading my dad around like a shiny toy mom finally let them bring outside. I surveyed my surroundings, skeptical as to why we were in this mall, the one on the other side of Queens, a trek away from our house, where the mall we usually go to was 20 minutes away from us. My dad smiles as a tall blonde woman walks up to us and says, hi. My name is Olga, in this accent that says she hasn't been in the country any longer than 10 minutes. She's Polish, my dad exclaims in his proudish roar. My brother and sister cling to her as loyal as puppies. I grit my teeth unknowing to this stranger's intent. We go to McDonald's, and my dad buys us all our favorites. Olga reaches across the table and playfully takes one of my fries. I push my tray away and lose my appetite. My dad and her take us to go buy games. They buy my brother and sister new Game Boys to replace their old broken ones. I pick up the new Pokemon Fire Red game and admire it, knowing it was too expensive for my dad to afford. My dad takes the game away from me and places it on the counter. She pulls her wallet from her purse. I spend the rest of the day enamored with her peace offering. I'm 10 and too young to understand the word bride. But right now, I'm holding my new game, and that's all that matters. After she leaves, my father buys me and my siblings ice cream, tells us not to tell mom about today, and if she asks, he bought us everything. I go home, kiss my mother, tell her how great our day was, then stay up all night playing with my parents' divorce under my bedsheet.
Cool. So there's like six of y'all that's gonna understand what's happening. I'm gonna be real child, I don't know the show, but when I found this shit out, I was pissed the fuck off. So just watch where this phone goes. <laughs> the title of this poem is called Scripted, and y'all understand why is that new poems? So Anthony's been dating girl for about three months. Girl says her dream career is to be a scriptwriter. She marvels at the ability to make television mirror real life. Girl calls Anthony Ted a lot. Anthony assumes this is short for Teddy, since Girl claims he's the softest man she's ever loved. Girl places real people with television counterparts. Claims Anthony's best friend is Barney from How I Met Your Mother, and his female best friend is Lily. The reason girl loves with a stutter. Says Anthony's eyes yearn for a female best friend like an addict awaiting his last spoonful of sin. Girl accuses Anthony of cheating on her with best friend. Girl says she can't trust Anthony anymore. Anthony thinks it's best if they take some time apart. Girl spreads rumor that Anthony now left her for best friend. So Anthony is now the antagonist. Has to learn how to live without the constant pulse of another. Anthony trains himself to forget girl's number, address, Facebook password, convince himself he's not in pain. Trains himself to be robotic. Anthony forgets her room number. They're a regular dining table. Pretends his love isn't still in a flash flood of tears. Girl, because Anthony was unfaithful, so he doesn't deserve pity. One day, he's scrolling through male best friend's phone. And he finds messages between that guy and his ex-girlfriend. Her name saved in his phone under Robin, detailing a one-night stand they had while her and Anthony were still together. How if they didn't tell anyone, they could both pretend it didn't happen. Best friend says, girls should turn the story on Anthony and make him seem like the bad guy. Side note, Barney and Robin are an engaged couple on How I Met Your Mother. Robin once dated Barney's best friend named so this is how girl makes love to Anthony's best friend and still smiles in his face. How best friend erases eight years of friendship. How his heart goes into rigor mortis when he thinks his, boy, his best friend helped girl the way he used to. He isn't sure which one hurts more. The fact that it happened or the fact that he didn't find it out until way after. Fighting back tears and rage, Anthony asks girl for closure. Girl says, Charlie Chaplin once entered a Charlie Chaplin look-alike contest and lost. Television doesn't care about the truth, just which perspective it comes from. So you know how like when you're heartbroken and you try to write some shit and you think it's the shit because like mm -hmm. you was heartbroken and you think that shit and you look back and you're like, damn, that's <laughs> that was just happening right now. I was just like, oh shit. She was, damn. <laughs> I'm gonna go home and like listen to Drake's album now. Cry a little bit. Don't judge me. <laughs> so, um, is it okay if I do two more of you guys? Hey, yes. Guys, yes. Are you guys enjoying yourself? I know I'm like, yes. <laughs> So, if I did not get it across in that poem, I'm like a sensitive thug. So, like, I'm be like, yeah, nah, I'm still Brooklyn. But then at the same time, I'm also like, oh, you motherfucker. Like, I still say that every one time. I like walk in my girl's room and it was just like, Poof. listen, woman. 
work. So like, yeah. So this next poem is me being more soft. This is gonna be the last soft poem of the night, and then I'm just like ending on some dog shit because I does that. <laughs> Not really, but whatever. So here we go. My godmother and I were related by heart. Both of us had holes in the wall that separated the two lower chambers. Our hearts were overflowing canals to our lungs where blood drowned us from the inside out, preventing breathing. I had open heart surgery at 10 months old to cure this. My godmother was unable to do so. Doctors predicted she'd be dead by five, 13, 18, and 25. Her heart was an hourglass that kept turning in order to survive. My godmother was the woman who taught me how to love told me that our old positive blood type just meant that we were destined to give all of ourselves to those we love, even though we are losing ourselves by the minute, the day after my 15th birthday. Six days before her birthday and three weeks before she's finally slated to have surgery, her heart gives out on her. Since then, exhales are hard to come by. I have become floodgate open because every woman I love is a bleeding image of her I love with a heart full of holes. Giving all of myself is in my bloodline. My past relationships are tales of me trying to find women that love me the way my godmother did, how I give and pour into them until they called me suffocating. I watched each of these women become my godmother's heart, hourglasses bursting like levees, our relationship becoming heart and lung, too much bleeding to exhale. They don't understand why I love like falling time. Because if they could just turn over and give love a longer lifespan. I bear the heavy of a defective heart. I love urgently because I know what it looks like to watch time escape a body. A heart give out before it's slated for repair. I only understand love when it's like my godmother and our blood spilling floodgate open, giving all of ourselves as if we had nothing to lose. like my second time ever in Albany like in life Um, what happened? 
Nah, she had a conversation. I just wanted to make sure I missed something. Right? <laughs> yeah, she, you know, she just leaned back with like, the, oh, I got caught. Look, she was like, shit. You're judging me? Yeah. Whatever. I don't care. I'm still a thug, though. Not really. Oh, whatever. <laughs> 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 I'm, I'm doing for Brooklyn. I'm doing for Brooklyn. like sensitive Brooklyn. So it's like Williamsburg and shit at the moment. That's the Bronx shit. No. I know, I know. That's not okay. Alright, for any of y'all that don't understand, the Bronx is to Brooklyn, but like, what, like the Patriots are to the Jets? So, like, when you see that shit, you're like, nah, I don't do that. It's not okay. So I'm um, doing this last home, um, and like six people caught it because like no one even watches football. Everybody's like, no, that's spot on. It was, but only six people got it. So I was like, damn, that wasn't a good enough analogy. No one knew. So um, this last piece I'm gonna do for you guys. It's been a piece that's been literally burning me to do recently. Um, it's so I just went through like a real transformative period after the Mike Brown non-indictment came out. And then even more so after Eric Gardner won. And it was just like, it's gotten to a point where like I'm not even surprised. And that's kind of how I felt after the Trayvon Martin verdict came out, which was what the previous poem was about. But like it's gotten to where I'm just like, I'm not surprised anymore. Like, we're second class citizens in the United States, according to them. And all these situations have been doing is if you thought things changed because you got a black president, let us remind you shit's still the same. Y'all still don't really go here. And that's kind of what it's felt like with all these situations that's going on. And it's like every time I decide I want to not do that poem about the Trayvon Martin verdict, somebody else dies. And it's like, well, this still is relevant. And I don't think I'm ever going to get to retire those those poems. But this one here, like, I want to retire so badly. Um, as you heard from the first poem, I have, like, an overly religious family. Like overly religious, so like almost everything in my life kind of equates to God and my spirituality somehow. And this poem kind of encompasses both of those. So the title of this poem is The Crucifixion, Matthew chapter 27 for Michael. And then the officers of Ferguson took Michael to the street and gathered upon him the entire neighborhood. And Michael raised his palm the whitest flags that he could offer. And when they orchestrated him an elegy of lead and planted it upon his head and chest and arm and one in his right hand, and they did not bow before him, for he is not king nor savior, but just another black body that will not be avenged, and they mocked his king and said, Darren Wilson will not be indicted. The way George Zimmerman will not be convicted. Mm -hmm. The way Eric Garner will not become Lazarus. And when they come onto a place called Ferguson or Sanford or New York, which is to say a place that is mourning, and they crucified him and parted his black from his bone. And in the sixth hour, there was darkness. All the black in the city had gathered. And in the ninth hour, they wept. And Michael Sr. had taken the body wrapped it in a suit, casket sharp. And on the 107th day, there was fire for Michael had yet to rise from the dead, for he was truly the son of black America. And I said I would not write the black poem about how death calls us 
the way parents call children for supper. How the man on the subway told me my appearance could kill me. I knew he meant this skin that I wore like Prada. This skin a bullet would make a make out of. And then I told myself I could survive if I just made myself smaller. Swallowed the key to my own voice box. All black biographies end in execution. So I decided it was more important to be alive than acknowledge. And then the silence was deadly. And the bullets sang cardinal birds throughout Brooklyn. And then the tears caught up to me. The tears that didn't fall for Trayvon or Troy or Jordan and then the protests were misnamed for riots and I didn't feel entitled to this anger for it belonged to the same people that had owned these black bodies for so many generations and how this felt like tradition, like a sacrifice to their gods, like black is sin. And Michael died for our black and how we rage and do this in remembrance of him and him and him and him. So when the light shuts off and it's my turn to settle down, my main concerns, promise that you will sing about me, promise that you will sing.